Love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. This is Wine, Women, and Revolution with your host, Heather Warburton. Hi, and welcome to Wine, Women, and Revolution. I'm your host, Heather Warburton, coming at you here on Create Your Future Productions. You can find us online at yourfuturecreator.com. Follow us on all the social medias and get us wherever you get your podcasts from. This is a guest I booked a little while ago and I've been really excited for. If you follow me on social medias, you've probably seen me a couple of times share a video by this guy. And it's the Love Me, I'm a Liberal. I think I first saw one that was the remake of like the, or the it's a remake. And one was he updated it for the Obama administration. And since then, I've seen videos of him here and there updating it again and again. So first off, I just want to welcome to the show, Ben Groskop. Heather, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's exciting. I'm so happy that you said yes. I'm always still surprised when people say yes. Like I write these, you know, awesome people I'm like, do you want to be on my show? And when they say yes, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so it's very cool that you decided to come on the show. So uh, I wanted to start right in. Um, you're kind of a labor troubadour. I think I saw you refer to yourself as once. You take a lot of these classic labor and socialist songs and either update them or perform them. How did you get into that? My goodness. Well, you know, a lot of my journey through political music has actually been connected to this thing called the People's Music Network. But that was starting in like the late 90s. And I'm actually starting in 2013, I, I became the executive director of the People's Music Network. So as a teen, I um, was very involved in anti-war activism. And by a teen, I'm, I, I just turned 39 yesterday. And so in 1999, um, I was very involved in the uh, movement in Minneapolis, where I grew up, uh, fighting against the sanctions on Iraq. Uh, we understood that to be a real uh, genocide uh, imposed by the United States government against an entire population. And, um, you know, in, in the fer ferment of, 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 of uh, anti-war, pro-peace activism, you know, I got involved with uh, s some music. I, I had been in a ska band, a very apolitical ska band, as, as a, um, even younger than, than that, like, I mean, 17 and so, and then, and then 16 and 17 and so, and so, and then, you know, I, I eventually, actually shortly after I turned 18, I got involved with this group, Voices in the Wilderness, and I actually went to Iraq on this delegation with this pacifist organization that was trying to resist the sanctions regime being imposed on the people of Iraq. And then um, I came home and I was on fire. I was wanting to organize with people, do activism, go to demonstrations, put on demonstrations. And I also wanted to do music. So I remember, I mean, as a, as a pretty... Um, pretty young person, you know, I uh, actually produced um, a CD that was a benefit CD. I mean, this was like 1999. So people still did this. And, and it was it was a variety CD of songs uh, from songwriters about the sanctions on Iraq. And and even though I was I didn't go to any in person gatherings at that point, I um, did uh, find through email members of the People's Music Network and 
through those networks actually found people around the country who were making songs about a topic that I felt very passionate about. So it wasn't until 2005, you know, after college and everything that I actually showed up in person to a, to a PMN event. But, um, you know, I had, I had like a modicum of musical skill as a teen. I was very politically involved. I started um, writing songs, even though I think, you know, the early songs, I look back on them as kind of mediocre, but, you know, that's okay, you know. And I even put the mediocre songs on the CD with some of the really fantastic songwriters. And some of those people are people I still work with today. That's very cool. <laughs> so you've really kind of started young in this, that it wasn't just a later in life thing that you got into. You've been involved in activism and organizing and music for kind of your whole life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, you know, it's been it's been a journey for sure. You know, moving from Minneapolis uh, as, as a teen, you know, I was... Um, I had, I had a kind of an unusual path. I ended up at this school up in Vermont that was kind of a radical institution uh, dedicated to education that um, was called, the, it's called the Institute for Social Ecology. It actually still exists. Um, there's a lot of interesting uh, kind of historical uh, things about the Institute for Social Ecology and, and the Green Movement, uh, various you know, political splits and disagreements and agreements and so forth. And that's what brought me out to the East Coast. And then I've been living in Massachusetts you know, since, since uh, 2003, when I came down to Western Mass for college. And throughout that, that process, you know, uh, for me, it's, it's been an exploration of political philosophy, um, political movements, and political songwriting. I, I would say like in the last 10 to 15 years of my life, you know, I haven't sort of kept up an active scholarly life in the way that, that I did, or, you know, uh, like in my early mid-20s. Um, but as an organizer, as as a as, as a leader in, in, in my organization, um, and and as an artist, you know, I've I've taken some of those insights, you know, about what is in crisis about about liberalism as a political uh, philosophy, and tried to make some fun with it, you know, um, and and tried tried to give that to people in a way that I think um, le leavens the uh, conversation a little bit. Right. Your remake of Love Me, I'm a Liberal is, a, it's funny. You want to make people laugh and you try to tailor it a little bit to your audience, but you cover a lot of really serious topics. Like I was going through your catalog, you cover things from climate change to uh, Palestine, not just labor and socialism. Are these all things that you're really passionate about? Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think that to, to sort of contextualize it a little bit for me, you know, I, I really see myself as kind of coming out of a tradition of a musician who dedicates their craft to the social movements that they are a part of. Um, you know, I look at, at, at artists who um, I have really looked up to and still look up to like um, David Rovix, you know, who is very active currently and has been for a very long time. Uh, he's writing songs, I mean, and he's very prolific too, you know, and so in a lot of his songs are ones that I cover, frankly, because they're effective songs, you know, if, if you if, if your goal is to bring your craft to the movement. So why does the movement need you is, I mean, one, one question, like you have to interrogate that maybe they don't need you. <laughs> but but if, if they do, they might not need you specifically, but but 
So you got to take the ego out of it a little bit. But the movement does need song, which doesn't mean they need you, but it means they need song. So if you can, as an artist, sort of like make an alliance there where it's like you need song. Why do you need song? Well, people are um, able to digest this undigestible reality we live through differently with a song. I have an old comrade from Minneapolis who once kind of likened my music. I really liked this to a digestive aid. If all the... (laughs) If all the crap food that we're getting from, you know, living in this derelict uh, and decadent society uh, that is so inhumane, so irrational in its um, practices ecologically, um, so authoritarian, so racist and sexist, we, we need a digestive aid to deal with the kind of shit that is... Um, before us and so so music can 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 perform that function a little bit like a probiotic (laughs) nice i mean art art and music and what you're doing and what i do with my art touches a different part of your brain too than just trying to have a rational discourse with someone so you can stimulate a whole different part of somebody's psyche with art and with music to help get those messages much better than maybe sitting down and quoting marx at them might do for example yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think that, 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 that ability to sort of touch another part of the brain is certainly one of the reasons why I like to use music, because I, I like to sort of bypass some of the other things. I mean, we should just also be clear that like, that's why lots of right wing forces also want to use music, right? So that's, it cuts both ways. You know, it's not a, it's not an all good thing that people do that. I mean, you know, the, singing the national anthem too, uh, just, I mean, for regular old standard nationalist patriotism and so forth, I mean, that that has an effect on people's political consciousness. Uh, you know, Pete Seeger was always talking about the importance of singing together. And Pete Seeger looms large in my organization, the People's Music Network, because, you know, he was a co-founding member of, of, of the organization. He was by far our most prominent member for a long, long time. And again, you know, his Pete's very last time showing up to a PMN gathering was the very first time that I showed up to one. So, um, you know, just to 2005 was, was, uh, okay. was the year, but, uh, but, but, um, so, so we can, we were kind of like ships passing in the night, Pete and me, but, um, but, but, but I know the history a little bit and he, 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 he really believed in this power of singing as, as a transformative sort of, um, sort of thing. And, you know, I don't know if I'm interpreting it right or not, but sometimes when I do try to like try to understand what I think Pete was saying. I kind of think he might have had a slightly overly optimistic point of view, actually, on this question. Um, I'm, I'm trying to make a sort of precise distinction here. I embrace the group singing the way that makes people feel, the way it changes people's brain chemistry. And part of my craft as an artist is to do that. I don't think that it is enough by itself. I think that um, that you need philosophy, you need hard political conversations, you need self-interrogation and a lot of other things. And I think that sometimes music, even in the Pete Seeger tradition, the critical thing I have to say about some sometimes how I see it playing out is that if it's not sort of encased in like a, a, a more um, like, like a political philosophy that is a little more demanding, you know, intellectually, that it can um, it can sort of go the way of, of, of overly simplistic 
political ideas encased in song. And then um, we're sort of talking about um, simpler political concepts when there's actually something a little, a little gnarlier that we have to get into. Okay, you've triggered all these people's brains. Now what's the next step? What are you going to do with them? Now that they're receptive, now is when the organizing has to come in. And now is when you actually make something happen other than just stimulating some chemicals in someone's brain. Yeah. Then, like the real work, you've opened the door, then the real work has to start. Yes, it, it, it saddens me that more people can't experience this. I mean, and it, let's talk about the pandemic for a second. I mean, especially now, you know, uh, but because it's actually physically sort of dangerous right now to have to do this experience. Um, but even before the pandemic, you know, I would go to rallies and I would be trying, you know, th through the best I know how, not that I'm the expert, not that I can do it as well as Pete did it or anything like that. Through the best I know how, trying to create a situation where, where a crowd could sing along together. And I just had this insight that the not... Maybe one of the limitations was like my own skill as an artist, but then there was another issue there too, which was people's readiness to want to sing together in the first place. So, so I'm, I'm mourning, and I've even written a song about the, the American idolization of song, which kind of is mourning the, the loss of this, this kind of cultural idiom where people can sing together. Uh, but but I, I, on the other hand, you know, um, once we get to that point where we can sing together, you know, what is our, is that giving us a sense of unity? And then unity behind what? Is it unity behind the Democratic Party? Is it unity behind sort of like some kind of Manichaean political concept where there's sort of like the good people in the blue states and the bad people in the red states or something? And like, that's the way we're going to create social change? To me, that's that's where I see a lot of politics going in kind of the liberal world. And I think that some of this sort of singing tradition is sort of... Um, sort of uh, very much uh, politically tied in with, with a sort of political liberalism that is a dead end for, for us as, as a people. And so, so, so I think the artist has to make some pretty, pretty discerning choices, frankly, about what is my role politically when I'm using this powerful tool of song to unite people. What am I uniting people for? Oh, absolutely. I think they've got to make these choices. But obviously, since we're both on this show, you know, we're not veering into the liberal lane so much that we're more actively engaging and being challenging capitalism and those okay. sorts of topics are what we're trying to engage with. And I mean, you're obviously, I think people that listen to your songs get sort of the lane that you're in. You're not just commenting you're hinting towards the solution is not liberalism <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but i mean you know if you think about music like and how the synergy of music and activism like the iww songbook like that's a classic right <laughs> and iww was deeply or still is deeply involved in organizing yeah yeah and you you mentioned that i i sometimes go around calling myself a labor troubadour which is true because i, I mean you know uh I am consciously trying to to draw from those wobbly traditions as as a lot of, of people you know I know I mean I think that um, there's a wonderful event that happens in Washington DC called the Great Labor Arts Exchange it's sponsored by a friend of the People's Music Network a, a friend organization <laughs> we're actually friends personally as well but our organizations are friends too so they because PMN and, and Labor Heritage Foundation have both 
existed for about 40 years. So and that, that's, that's a community where I think some of these wobbly singing traditions are, really come alive for me, you know, in my experience. Um, and and, and that, that idea of taking a familiar song, this has been repeated many times. Utah Phillips has talked about it. David Rovix has talked about it. Um, you know, Charlie King has talked about it, all these, these incredible singers and Feeney. Um, you, you take a familiar musical idiom maybe maybe it's 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 what the christians are singing you know in wobbly time right you know uh, early 20th century um the, the the salvation army band is is singing a, a song to try to like get the workers to sort of be sort of uh, you know accept their lot in life you know be okay with with sort of what the capitalist is giving them and such and then and then you take that melody this very familiar thing and you turn it right around on them and you give it a political bite that now gives a spark to your movement to increase its confidence and its willingness to resist what the the capitalist is doing to them now in my particular case you know i have uh been most i've I've probably developed the most um connections over the years with with nurses unions because i just have some material that is about nurses and like the specific situations. I mean, it could have been teachers. It could have been janitors. It just happened to be nurses. It's, I don't, I mean, I'm not a nurse. I've just learned some things about it. And so, um, yeah. And then, and then a, a comrade of mine from Corvallis, Oregon, um, Paul McKenna and I did, did, did a song, uh, earlier in the spring, uh, about the pandemic and about nurses on the, the, the front line of the pandemic called, uh, we just come to work here. We don't come to die. And that was, uh, borrowed from, not 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 precisely a parody it's kind of kind of a repurposing of a song because the the original song was by harry stamper the the longshoreman um and he was talking about workplace safety and here we have a situation where nurses are really on the the front line of of an incredibly unsafe work environment made unsafe by the neglect of their bosses by the neglect of the federal government and I've played that at a few rallies now for nurses, uh, you know, socially distanced with masks and all that kind of stuff during the pandemic. And, and it's gone over pretty well and, and a f- at a few online events as well. Yeah, I think that also would apply to teachers too, you know, saying it could have been any union you're working with. That same song probably would apply to teachers right now as well, who I do a lot of my organizing with as teachers. And they're saying the same things like, you're sending us off to die to promote capitalism because people don't have babysitters for their kids. Like, so they can stay home and learn online safely. You're sending teachers in as a sacrifice. So it's the same thing that a lot of these public sector unions are facing. Very true. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've noticed a lot of the, the, the similar political circumstances of, of teachers and, and, and nurses and, um, then, you know, so, so I think at, if, if my job was sort of like broad analysis of the labor movement, which it kind of isn't, you know, like I would, I would, I would focus more on that. But I think it, it's sort of like, um, how, do, how do you get the, the connections made with the, the, the organizations? I mean, if you want to have music at an event, I mean, there's this very super practical kind of question I think about all the time is like, where do people get together? There's a lot of unions where the members don't get together with each other. And so how are you going to have music then? You know, like, w- you're going to have the union Spotify playlist? What? I mean, <laughs> Hey, you know, that maybe I mean, isn't that bad of an idea. You know, and okay, I have my playlist too, right? Just like anybody, but okay, but let's just be real. If, if that's the way we're integra- in, interacting with music, that's a very individualistic way to interact with it. 
So it might lift our spirits, but it's going to, it's going to, I'm going to make the playlist lifts my specific spirits according to what my specific thing is. And this is, this is a way that, that sort of, so, so we're not necessarily co- accomplishing all the goals that we want to accomplish sometimes with music, <laughs> if that's the way we're interacting with it. And, right. and, and I'm just acknowledging all this stuff has gotten more difficult under the pandemic because um, it was difficult enough with the destruction of sort of collective singing cultures before the pandemic to try to make this connection happen. And I think it's just, there's, there's some things exacerbated by it. So, I mean, what we're trying to do with People's Music Network is try to actually create a regular, vibrant online space where members of the network can actually get together and share their songs. And then we have kind of a circle of appreciation where the person like hears the the artist before them, you know, and most of the songs are pretty political. So whether you agree or not with what, what, you know, was said, I mean, it's all kind of within a progressive left-wing sort of context, but like you, 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 you sort of listen and sort of say you're encouraged then to sort of comment on the artist who just came before you and, and then create this circle of appreciation where people are actually listening to each other, uh, in, in, a, in a deeper way because so much of our um, music performance spaces in terms of like participatory things are like very like going to the open mic and playing I mean this is pre-pandemic sort of like playing to the crowded bar where the conversation is too loud it's not that satisfying you kind of got your chance to sort of sing but then um, you know who who is really listening to you so I mean I think that the performance venues that are more interesting to me and, and the sort of participatory performance venues like open mics and, and um, song swaps and so forth that are more interesting to me is where there's actually an intentional, con- uh, you know, there's an intentional desire to create a listening environment. And you do that, I think, partly through politics, because you if people have a shared political purpose, they have a reason to want to listen to each other. Whereas if if you're just, you know, talking about your love life and I'm just talking about my love life and we just, I mean... Or, or my anxiety and your anxiety. I mean, what what's the basis of unity there? We need to build a basis of unity and then write songs around that basis of unity. And that is going to be a lot more powerful in terms of connecting people. Can people check out these song swaps, even if they're not members of the network? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's all live streamed for free on peoplesmusic.org through our Facebook page and YouTube page. But then, um, and we often invite non-members to participate you know, just to check it out because, you know, you might not want to join, you might want to join, but uh, it's easy to join, but it's, um, you know, we, we've got, you know, the advantage we had coming into the pandemic was that there was 40 years of history behind us trying to organize people in these politically intentional artistic spaces. And then we once, once, once enough of us kind of made the transition to learn some of the technology, maybe a few of us needed to upgrade our equipment and whatever. Cause the quality of the microphone makes a difference in terms of like the listenability as just, even though you're kind of like in your disaggregated, you know, isolated space of listening, you know, in your home and whatever, but, um, having that makes a difference for sure. And, um, but we, we just do the best we can with whatever equipment people have and then kind of create an interesting social experience that I, I've never had before, but, you know, we're doing now. 
<laughs> no, it sounds really cool, and I definitely want to check them out. When do you do them? You said you do them every week? Yeah, and we try to do it different times of day and different days of the week. The other thing you can do is just look at our archives, you know, look at all the different people who come in, all the different names that show up on that archive page is quite, quite, quite a diversity. And sometimes we do special events, you know, um, so we got the open song slops, but we also have special events where uh, people will be focused on, I don't know, Indigenous People's Day, music of Indigenous People's Day, or uh, artists against racism using hip-hop music uh, against uh, racism. Various fundraisers and just things like that, you know. Uh, so check out the website, basically. Peoplesmusic.org. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So aside from yourself, obviously, who else are you listening to these days? What other artists and musicians are you checking out? Well, I mentioned David Robix. I mean, you know, the thing about David that I think just stands out to me is he is an artist who reads i mean i think he he he's he really reads history you know and he writes songs about history and you can literally sign up for this guy's podcast and it says like song for today and you can it'll, it'll be literally like okay on this day you know december 14th you know 200 years ago this uprising happened in this place and he's got a song about it you know it's amazing <laughs> and uh i just never seen an artist like that who who uses song in a way that really brings you right down to earth right down to the heart of struggle and then just just <laughs> gives it to you in this totally novel way i just never seen somebody do something like that before where he's got like this day in history and he's got literally a great song about this thing that happened yeah that's very cool using it as an educational platform as well too which i mean that reminds me kind of like of when i was a little kid like they might be giants you know you're singing the istanbul song or uh, any of them using you know music as a way of educating people so it's very cool to see like the adult version of that <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, also, Loki is a hip hop artist from the UK who I think is just incredibly moving. I mean, just great production. This guy, um, I think he's uh, he's Arab, but he might be Palestinian. I can't remember, but he's 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 British, right? And he's got these just absolutely heart wrenching songs about imperialism that um, people should just listen to. I mean. Um, he, he he captures something about the the violence of of this system in his songs in a very moving way and he you know as an individual he's been very successful with his music so i mean part of, i think it's it's a common trope in hip-hop that people are are like accounting for their own success <laughs> if they reach the success right? <laughs> like he has so you know um but but then he just seems like like a person who just has this sensitivity and depth of emotion to his music, and it's just just musically beautiful. Um, but the, the the content is 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 really getting people to face just the incredible violence of the imperialist system, and 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 we just can't lose sight sight of that. And and having artists like Low Key in the UK just really helps people to, I think, remember. That's great. I have to definitely check him out. I haven't even heard of him. So I'll definitely be checking him out after this as well. 
I've got maybe two more questions before you've agreed to do a song for us. So I have maybe two more quick questions that uh, we want to get, I want to get through before we move into that song, which I'm really looking forward to. One of which was anyone throughout history, a musician that you could collaborate on a project with, who would that like, who would you like that to have been? <laughs> can, can, can I tell you instead about a, a collaboration that I did do that was really exciting to me? Okay. <laughs> Okay, I know it was a little bit of a fudge, but um, <laughs> there's an artist in in um, the Bronx named Dilson Hernandez, and he's he's a multi-genre um, artist who uh, sings great songs, does amazing spoken word poetry, and he's a recording artist. And I've got a song called No More Sacrifice Zones, which is um, uh, a inspired actually by Chris Hedges' book, um, from 2012, uh, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. And, 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 and the song is telling about the ways in which this capitalist system just grinds the land and, and, and lives of people in, in different communities in, into, to, to, to a sacrifice zone, in, in, into dust and, 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 and what, what's left behind all this, this extraction from places that, that are geographically centered, you know, um, so, so this this term sacrifice zone has has come up in a number of places around ecological issues as well as sort of police violence issues. How 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 the black community in in in, in many configurations, particularly poor black communities, are systematically sacrificed by the economic system we live in. So, it's got like four verses about different places and so forth where this kind of pattern plays out. And so Dilson had this just we did a show together a few years ago and to make the show happen he came up with a spoken word piece that actually weaved the spoken word verses in with the sung verses and it's just as a solo artist who doesn't often get to um do that level of of artistic thing and political kind of conversation because what we ended up with is, is like this co-written piece where he did the the spoken word and and he just did such a brilliant job, I think, of like emphasizing in in the spoken word verses what was being pointed to in in the verses that I wrote to to sing. So so I um I'm I'm just very very excited about that collaboration that we did. Is that on your YouTube page? Yeah, it is. So people can check that out. No more sacrifice zones with Dilson Hernandez and Ben Grosscup. Yeah. All right, and here's my final question that if you follow me, you know I ask a lot of people is, do you consider yourself an optimist? No, I um, don't consider myself that. I, 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 uh, I think that um, on, on this, on this le le level, I, I, I feel more in line with Chris Hedges. I mean, I think that um, he understands that... Um, Societies can collapse. I mean, I'm not against hope necessarily, but I, I don't necessarily indulge in what I think is kind of a cultural obsession about hope. I think it becomes kind of a, a palliative to living in a society that is really um, in deep crisis. We have to then have like a political understanding of how we got to the situation that we're in. Why are things so perilous? Why is it that we've known about the climate catastrophe for so long, but have had no way to act 
adequately to address it. And, you know, it's, it's not because there weren't enough people recycling, and it's not because there weren't enough people putting solar panels on, on their roofs. It's because we have an irrational economic system that can't respond to reality. So, in other words, we are living in a perpetual state of illusion. In the illusion that um, technology will save us, the illusion that billionaires will save us. Uh, th there's a lot of illusions like that, you know, or oh, geez, on the right, you got the illusions that like the enemy is, um, you know, the, 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 the scapegoated, generally brown population, right? Um, so there's a lot of illusions out there. And so, so um, I think one has to sort of root whatever their pol politics are in, in, in reality. And rea when reality is really rough, uh, you sort of have to um, not tell yourself lies about how things are going to get better through, 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 through means that are not real. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't sort of hold out some hope for, well, if we did do the following things, if we really did fight with all our might for Medicare for all, if we really did um, create a, a socialist system that meaningfully address the the kinds of life and death issues that that face us which capitalism cannot do it, it, it can't it can't act rationally it has to constantly grow so it can't act rationally then then we have a a, a chance so you, you have to cut through all the bullshit about why we can't do this why we can't do that you know well we can't take a real stand on medicare for all because then you know it might threaten Nancy Pelosi. I, this has just been reading about this controversy recently. I think we should definitely be pressuring AOC and all the other progressives to with, you know, withhold any kind of vote for Nancy Pelosi as the speaker until she allows a, 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 a floor vote on, on Medicare for all. I mean, that's a minimum. That's a minimum demand, but like a good demand. I think we should be supporting that. That kind of courage, you know, could, could, could give cause for hope. But this bullshit stuff about, um, oh, you know, we're going to get more co-sponsors and just wait a little longer. Come on. People are dying right now in this pandemic. I mean, I, I just think that, that the, the sort of wait and see attitude is, is uh, so, so transparently bankrupt. And so um, I don't know if that leaves me as a strict pessimist. I think that that can get a little problematic, but... Um, am I an optimist? Uh, no, but I, I, I think that I try to only, I limit the things that I have hope in to things that are based in reality. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can totally see where you're coming from. And, you know, as far as expecting any politician to save us, that's not going to happen. They're not having a floor vote because they don't want to have the votes probably. And they want to protect their members. That's something we see at least in New Jersey politics. Like as long as I've been involved in New Jersey politics, they just don't call a floor vote because they know that it's not going to pass. And they want everyone to still be able to have that illusion of, yeah, we're, we're working on it when really yeah. they don't support it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and right, because to do that kind of thing, to to to, to fight for a, a vote that, that you are going to lose, it means sacrificing, right? It's like short-term sacrifice. You're going to have a short-term sacrifice 
in order to serve a longer term goal. And that's one of the things that this culture of neoliberalism and compromise and um, unprincipled political behavior unwilling to do. Absolutely. And so, so you have a whole class of political operatives who, who just don't have really principles, you know, and, and so they can't really be trusted. And that's who we have running the Democratic Party. And that's who we have running a lot of the sort of standard organizations out there that say, even the ones that are say they, they're, they're, they're organizing for justice is like, you really have to have, I think, a very thoroughgoing and critical attitude toward, you know, is this person really willing to, 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 to sacrifice? It's like, it, and if, if I'm going to, in, in perilous times, you, you're, fo you're faced with difficult choices. Like that's the thing about being in perilous times, which we're in, you know, to, I mean, I don't know. I, it's like, I look at my own life. Things have been kind of easy for me. You know, I've had, uh, what do they call it? What's the opposite? Tailwind. I've had a lot of tailwind. Headwind is when things are more difficult for right. you. Tailwind is when things get a little easier for you. So, you know, I, I don't mean to say this just for other people to think about. It's like, well, what am I willing to sacrifice? That's also the way that you kind of have to approach a question like that. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and try to pump myself up, say I made all these amazing sacrifices, but I'm just saying sacrifice is part of what gives you integrity. And integrity is so very important, but we're going to run over time a little bit here. So I want to give you a chance for a quick last word and then let's hear your song. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Heather. I, I really appreciate you doing this uh, interview and in inviting me on. I've enjoyed talking with you and I feel like we've gotten into some really interesting stuff. I'd love to share you this song. All right. Let me Take it away. Guitar. So Phil Oaks actually wrote this song, Love Me, I'm a Liberal, in 1965. And he sang it at this demonstration organized by the Students for Democratic Society against the Vietnam War. And in this demonstration, you know, like any demonstration, you know, you had your music and you had your speakers. Uh, and so one of the speakers was I.F. Stone. And one of the singers, as I mentioned, was Phil Oaks. So Phil Oaks started and he sang this song, Biting Sardonic uh, Takedown of, of the Liberal Elite of the 1960s. And then he was followed by I.F. Stone. And now the, the, the accounts that I have read about this is that there was a conflict, there was a little bit of a fracas because I.F. Stone was not, Im not impressed, frankly, with the political position that was expressed by, by this song, Love Me, I'm a Liberal. Um, and I think that, that I.F. Stone, you know, he was a, he was a hero of the anti-war movement because he was, he was actually highlighting the crimes of the U.S. government in Southeast Asia. And people were relying on that reporting to understand their own opposition to the Vietnam War. Um, and Phil, so, but, but, but then I.F. Stone took exception to the dismissive sort of attitude that I think Phil Oaks was taking toward, 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 toward liberalism. And, um, you know, I, although I've heard this challenged, you know, my understanding was that I.F. Stone at some level considered himself a liberal, although I, I actually have met people who knew I.F. Stone who said he didn't really think of himself as a liberal. But I mean, you know, there is the way I explain that a little bit is there is this category of kind of the honest liberal who sort of still believes that like 
in the end, constitutional values will sort of save us and everything. But um, when it comes down to like the crimes of the U.S. government, uh, we're going to tell the truth about them, as I have Stone did, and um, we're going to face the reality, as I was saying earlier. You know, face the reality is very important. But anyway, uh, the, so the fracas happened. I think I have Stone said something to the effect of, oh, you know, I've seen these Marxist-Leninist punks come and go, you know, but here in Washington, D.C., it's... It's, it's, it's difficult being a liberal because, again, he sort of was trying to use the instruments of liberalism as, as, a, as a tool to, to, to organize against the war. So, so the song has been controversial for a long time is the ultimate point of this story. And this is my effort to keep it current. I mourned the Tiananmen martyrs whose free speech was so brutally quelled. And I cheered when Mandela walked freely after so many years in a cell. But Mr. Assange can rot in prison. Those secrets were not his to tell. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. I attend sensitivity trainings, and I leave feeling so reassured. I love Oprah and magic and foreman. It's great to see blacks become entrepreneurs. We've got diversity up to the White House. Revolution would just be absurd. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. I cheered when Obama was chosen, my faith in the system restored. And I'll never forgive Ralph Nader for the race he stole from Al Gore. And I love hardworking Latinos, as long as they don't move next door. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Something's wrong with working class voters who disgraced America's name. Someone's controlling the way that their minds work and Vladimir Putin's the man who's to blame. But if you think you can win single-payer, you must be completely insane. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. I listen to all things considered, I'd consider anyone's views. I watch Colbert and Rachel Maddow I use irony in everything I do but when Trump set his sights on Maduro there was no one more red, white, and blue so love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal I vote 
for the Democratic Party. They're strengthening NATO command. I saw Bono at the Live 8 concert. I'd buy anything endorsed by his brand. We're gonna make poverty history. I'm on Facebook taking a stand. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Sure, once I was young and impulsive. I wore every conceivable pin. I fought for a socialist future, which I actually thought we could win. Ah, but I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Well, thank you so much for that. That was really a pleasure to hear. And to my audience, thank you so much for joining us here today. We would not be here if it were not for you. We try to be the voice of underserved ideas, underserved people, and underrepresented communities. And let's be honest, corporate sponsors are not lining up to give me money for some reason for doing that. So I do have to keep asking you, if at all possible, go onto my website, click on the donate tab. You can donate, you can support me on Patreon or donate through PayPal. And I appreciate everything you do to help us out. The future is yours to create. Go out there and create it.